This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Hi, I'm Bex. And I'm Laura. And we're here to talk openly and honestly about miscarriage, stillbirth, and all pregnancy loss. We aim to smash the taboo surrounding these subjects. And rebuild the topic in a way to support and educate women. Rather than isolate and shame them. Welcome to the worst girl gang ever. Hi everyone. We had such a great chat with Chris and we could have spoken to him for hours. We have split his interview into two episodes. So here's part one. Hi everyone and welcome to this week's episode of the worst girl gang ever. And we have a man here. A man is here in the studio. Do you remember that Harry Enfield thing? It was like, oh, young man. That's (laughs) what I feel like doing. So I've done it. It's out there. It's done. But we're joined by Chris Binney, who is uh, Instagram at Pinecones and Study Days. And he's here to talk all about his experience and what he's doing for charity. So welcome, Chris. Hi, good evening. Thanks for coming. It's lovely to have you. So Chris, <laughs> would you be able to give us a little bit of an intro into what has, you know, what why you are a member of the Worst Girl Gang? Yeah, um, sure. Uh, Barney and I fell, well, Bar- we didn't both fall pregnant, obviously. Um, <laughs> you helped. Barney fell pregnant. Uh, unplanned unexpectedly in the summer of 2013 um and everything was just kind of normal we hadn't she was consultant led because she's diabetic Um, but there was no there were no sort of red flags anything for us to be concerned about everything was absolutely normal so she was going to be induced at 38 weeks Mm. because of Uh, the diabetes because of the diabetes So she didn't have a sort of community midwife. She didn't do any appointments out in the community. It was all hospital-based, which was fine. We didn't really think anything of that. And, and we weren't flagged up as there being any issues. Um, so that was 38 weeks, which was the Friday. And the Wednesday before, so two days before her pla- the date of her induction was the last day before I started my paternity leave. And I was on the other side of the country with work and she called me. She'd had an appointment, a sort of routine. They said, well, we've got you booked in for this routine checkup. So just Mm. pop up to the hospital on the Wednesday morning. We'll sort of give you the once over before we all come in on the Friday. Mm. Um, And she'd rung, she rang, I got a phone call from an unknown number. I I work in um, the healthcare industry. So when I get phone calls from unknown numbers, it's hospitals. Yeah, I got a phone call as I was, as I was pulling up at a hospital over on the, over in Cheshire from an unknown number. And I just thought, Oh, it's probably this hospital wanting to know sort of where I am because they want to start this, this surgery that I was going for. And she'd rung me from the antenatal clinic. She'd gone up and it was a quick checkup and they'd asked her about her movements. And then they'd said, Oh, we, you know, we'll just do a quick scan seeing as you're here. Uh, And they told her that Henry had died. Um, so she rang me from the antenatal clinic and just sort of said, you know, you've got to come home. 
Um, and, and you know, we up to that point, thirty-seven plus five, everything was completely normal, and then suddenly it wasn't. Um, and had oh, she? I'm so sorry. That is just must have been the shock of 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 that have being so close to like the finish line, and then especially having all your care through the hospital as well. I mean, Christ, yeah, I think I'm you know, so we're, we're talking 2014 and I'm sure, you know, we're going to drill down into some of the charity stuff. And I think the maternity world knows a lot more about some of the risk factors now than they did six years ago. Yeah. Um, you know, he was born on the Friday evening at 38 weeks and he weighed four pounds 13. So he was absolutely oh. tiny. Um, yeah. and they hadn't they hadn't picked that up that he was growth restricted and obviously growth restriction is like a a, a big risk factor for yeah. for stillbirth but I think if they detected it in this in the scans and the measurements pr- prior to us going in they probably would have got him out at 37 weeks you know right there was, there was nothing there was actually nothing wrong with him yeah. he was just really small so you know he fits into that box of stillbirths that were preventable but you can only prevent it if you spot the problem. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. But I think for a long time, our societies had this idea that stillbirth is just one of those things and that mm. babies that are stillborn, you hear all this sort of, you know, too, too poorly, or and there's this perception that these babies aren't well enough to survive. And actually it's only really now that we're, we start to understand more that certainly the babies that die at term, mm there's very rarely actually anything wrong with them they're usually absolutely fine yeah it's just a question of you know whether or not people intervene fast enough and you know Bryony was 42 so we now know a lot more about the the speed at which women's placentas age and older women's placentas oh, really? age faster so they always talk about you know inductions at 42 weeks because then they're always worried that placentas are going to start to pack up after yeah. 42 and they've now shown that women over the age of 35's placentas tend to age about three weeks faster so if you're okay. 35 or above 39 weeks is the point at which they start to worry more about your placenta whereas for younger women it wouldn't be till 42 so all of these oh, that's things interesting that's really I like that I definitely didn't know that at all so and that and has that filtered years ago that's, no, that's relatively recent, so and has that filtered through so mainstream now are you induced earlier if you're an if you're an older mum I, I I'm not sure it's kind of routinely adopted but I think a lot of the the sort of the big centers the the big city center hospitals that do a lot of the research and take a lot more of the sort of complex pregnancies will be having those conversations about induction and it's all about choice isn't it ultimately Mm. but they'll be having those conversations about the option from about 39 weeks Um, and it's about you know weighing up the risks and, and the benefits and different women will want will want different things from their birthing experience and and so on so it's about having that option I think as much as anything yeah absolutely that's why my my cesarean was was brought forward because the placenta started packing up but I was only 33 I think age yeah but I get yeah age sorry not gestation 37 gestation but I guess there's a there's a scale. It's not like at thirty five. Yeah, it, it's, it's not. It's it's, it's not a black early. and white thing. Yeah. There's all sorts of different factors that that. 
can can lead to different women having issues you know so i guess the answer is to have better monitoring more frequent monitoring scans and i mean the only reason that they found that out with me was because i kept going in for um like basically anxiety i just just kept going in um and they were like okay we'll scan you um but if they yeah, hadn't have done that there's there's various things they've brought in in the last few years one of the big things that you know mums that are pregnant now or have been pregnant in the last few years will have noticed is that the growth charts are customized to the mum now mm. oh, that's whereas true. previously they used uh, to be yeah generic. yeah because when they I remember that because I've got a son at, who's just 10 and my daughter is eight and then I've got a one-year-old as well and I noticed with my one-year-old the way that they worked out that her probability that what we she should probably weigh yeah, if so they're looking at your height and your weight and yeah, your yeah and I thought at the time I thought well, I don't that. remember that yeah and so whereas previously you know you could be a you could be six foot two and 15 stone or you could be five foot nothing and seven stone wet through and your growth chart would be the same yeah yeah. Which doesn't actually make any sense. It doesn't, mm. does it? And that seems really crazy that they haven't based it, you know, based it on that before now. This is just seems it's a bit a, behind. You know, you know, that's come in over probably over the last five, six, five, six, seven years or so. Mm. In our local hospital, they introduced them six months after Henry died, which oh, really I, I suspect, you know, they do a lot of all the hospitals now do a lot of uh reviews after yeah. any stillbirth and and you know I don't know for for a fact but I wouldn't be surprised to find out that that was one of the things that was picked up when they reviewed Henry's death and mm. it, they may have been planning on bringing it in anyway it might be a complete coincidence um but I, I suspect that it might have it might have been a, a factor in in their decision yeah, I guess they're always auditing aren't they that and and any any patterns that they find they'll then should be acting on yeah and you know yeah. I think for a lot of for a lot of us as bereaved parents that's one of the one of the really important things is we all know any of us that have been through this experience whether we're talking neonatal death or term stillbirth or, or loss earlier in pregnancies if something could have been done to change it you can't wave a magic wand none of us have got a time mm-hmm. machine we can't go back and change it but what we absolutely all want is we want to be the last one that that mistake happens mm, for. Yeah, for sure. We don't want ever anyone to to fall to who, for their care to fall down in the same way because yeah. people mm. aren't learning. And that's the, for me. That's one of the really important things is as a as a as a as an industry as a healthcare system, maternity needs and do l- try and learn from these situations every single time because nobody's mm. perfect. We just need to not make the same mistake over and over again. I think that's nail on head there, Chris, because I think certainly from my experience, I found it so painful that the thought of other people going through it with the lack of support and with the lack of kind of conversation around it and with the lack of awareness was absolutely the driving force behind the reason we've done what we've done. It's just because you know you can't change it for you, but because you felt it so acutely and you know that pain, you don't want anyone, as humans, we don't want anyone else to go through that, do we? And I think, you know, that I think that applies to aftercare and bereavement care and, and mm-hmm. how families are looked, are looked looked after after the event as well. You know, yeah. all of these sorts of things. How do we make care that could be better, better? Mm. Yeah. yeah. Chris, tell us about your experiences between getting that phone call 
and then him coming into the world like what what was that like how long yeah so there? i mean i got that phone call sat in a car park outside a outside a hospital two and a half hours from home and it's all a bit of a blur i think when you get that mm. you know i i, I know I've, autopilot. I, I've spent years feeling guilty in a completely irrational sense for not having been there for that appointment but there was no right. reason for me to have been there for that appointment um and i went into the hospital that i was going into found the surgeon that i was going to see told him what was going on and I can't really remember this conversation spent five ten minutes talking him through some kit that he was going to use for an operation that day and then left and then I had a two and a half hour drive home mm. and you know that's I think that's I don't, I don't really remember a lot of the drive I just remember thinking I just need to stay on the phone to people mm-hmm. because I need to be concentrating on keeping it together and if I stop yeah, talking yeah. And I, I, I was just talking out of nonsense to people. Yeah. If you stop talking, you start thinking, and then then your mind. And, I, and I didn't actually know the the detail of what I was of this situation. I I knew that he died, but when you're two days out from the happiest day of your life, and then you find out you don't know the I didn't know the detail. And at that point, I didn't need to know the detail. I just needed to get back. Yeah. Um. And. By the time I got back on the Wednesday afternoon, Brian was already at home. And we went back up to the hospital on the Wednesday afternoon and saw the consultant. And the consultant was lovely, but I think you know, we, a lot of us talk about this, and I don't know whether any of your previous guests have talked about this, is I always ask this question to midwives about when care starts in this mm-hmm. sort of situation. And on the Wednesday afternoon, we were basically told, in a much kinder and more gentler way than I'm about to summarise it now, well, you're booked in for Friday, so we'll see you on Friday morning. And, and and then you kind of get dropped. And this is a really common thing, I think, for families that are going to then have to go in and go through the labouring, the birth experience. They very often get picked up really well once they land in the hospital on the day. Right. But you quite often get a sort of 24, 48-hour period where you can just sometimes sort of slip through the net. Right. Mm. So we had that sort of Wednesday afternoon through to Friday morning. Just on your own. Just Not sort of, knowing what was really going to happen. No one you don't really, you it. can't plan. You can't go home and, no. and, and grab pregnancy for dummies and flick to a chapter about what happens when your baby dies to work no. out what you're going to do. And so, we, you know, we were just kind of left in a bit of a flat spin. That um, must have been so hard as well, coming back home to all the paraphernalia that comes with... You know, because you must have been two days before the baby's due to to be here and brought home and looked after. You must have had everything there. You must have had yeah, everything and, around. And, you know, you, you, and you're going through a hospital bag going, well, do I need this now? Do I not need that now? Yeah. I know oh. we've, we've worked really hard, certainly in one of the charities that I've done a lot of work with. We talk about this period as being called the void. Yeah. Because you just kind of get dropped into a black hole. And we've done a lot of work producing resources for families that will suggest things that they could put in their birth into their hospital bag for when they're going in for that kind of experience. Right. Um, you know, we all look back and we think, oh, I that's really good. That. That's something that mm. that's really quite simple, but can make someone feel a little bit more prepared. And that's, you know, it's stuff that, that is still going to be relevant. There's stuff mm-hmm. that becomes relevant. Like I, you know, one of, I know this is on the list of, of things on that resource, but one of the, my biggest regrets is that I never read him a story. Yeah. And, 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 and if somebody had said to me on the Thursday, put a book in, mm. 
then that's something I would have thought to do. But I think when you're in that situation, you need people to do your thinking for you. Yeah, of course. Because you, you're not capable in that moment, no matter how with it you think you are or how on top of it you are, you're not capable of actually processing rational thought at that moment in time. And you're not prepared for it. You you have you have no idea what to expect and and like you say, what you'll what you'll regret because you've not you've not done it before. And unless someone who has done it before can can give you that advice and you know we've going been in blind we've been a mixture all the way through of of organized and prepared and, and and utterly disorganized and I'm sure everybody's like that in their first pregnancy to some extent you know once we knew we were having a boy it took us about three seconds to pick a name but then right at the end we were still rushing around like I'm sure everybody does in the last weekend just getting everything sort of finished so mm. it's some it's like somebody's just walked in and just tipped the table upside down and you find yourself in that kind of weird situation you do need guidance whether that's from the professionals or from resources that professionals can give you just to steer you in the right direction because mm. mm. the thing about that situation of course is that you you get no there's no do-overs yeah if you don't get the chance to make certain memories in that window of time yeah. you can't go back six twelve 24 months later and just make them that it doesn't work I was gonna say it's hard enough when you when you have you know when your baby's born when your first time parent your baby's born and, and everything goes to plan you don't know what you're doing do you but but as you say there's it doesn't really matter if you forget to take this that and the other to the hospital you come home and you've got it at home but with your situation, you, as you say, it's, you've got those moments and then that's it. And that must have been such a difficult thing to deal with, to go through. I think, you know, you just, the thing about it for me is that there's no, there's no one size fits all. Mm. Everybody's experience is going to be different. Everybody's needs in that moment are going to be different. And so the challenge for the professionals that are supporting you is to adapt the way that they're providing that care to guide mm. you through as as best you can but it's not easy because different people will need different types of support mm. so from a male perspective from a dad's point of view what was the things that you found the most difficult or what were the things that you were able to bring to help I think and and this may or may it may or may not be entirely different from the dad's perspective in a in a normal routine happy laboring situation but there's like dads or partners yeah person who's not laboring that sense of of feeling a bit like a spare part feeling a bit powerless and you know I think for 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 blokes like to do stuff I think you know and I think on the Thursday I wanted to just make I took I took it upon myself to make all the phone calls to all the different people that we needed to tell what happened they also want to fix stuff and you can't yeah and and we can't fix it It, we're pre-programmed blokes particular are pre-programmed to try and fix things and you can't fix it mm. so and the nature of maternity is mum and baby so one of the things that it's really hard for dads is that a non-birthing partner is you can feel kind of left out on the edge of what's happening in front of you yeah and because nothing that you can do to get involved can actually change the outcome that you know that you're heading towards yeah it can be really challenging I think because you just you know I I can't bring my 
sun back and I can't take this pain away and mm. can I do anything useful and the midwife may or may, or may not involve me and, and I think little things that were I've seen through the work that we've done over the last few years that we're starting to change is that things like getting dad to cut the cord and stuff like that that are just a routine thing in a normal situation I think quite often they could get forgotten because yeah it's a, it's a, we have to remember it's a hugely stressful situation for the professionals in that in that moment as well yeah um in a different way it's not the same kind of stress as it is for the parents but that's a horrific situation for them mm. they they don't sign up to be midwives because they want to support families whose babies have died they want to support families in the happiest moment of their life yeah of course so psychologically for them it's really traumatic to be able to have to kind of flip to the opposite end of yeah I mean it, and it really is when you say that it really is the opposite end is having to not it's the happiest moment of your life to the worst moment of your life yeah yeah, for yeah. Sure. nothing and yeah. having to go from those two it's not like going from a slightly bad situation to a to a good situation it's going from horrendous to ecstatic you know these yeah. people who are doing this sort of thing all day every day and I think it's it's easy, and I totally understand why it happens. It's easy for health professionals in that situation to almost default back to the book, yeah, mm, and just mm. follow the process and not think about and be very ne- neutral, yeah. And so you end up forgetting about the the emotional parts of it. You end up forgetting about well, should I ask the dad if he wants to cut the cord or something like that? Because yeah, yeah. You're too busy focusing on the clinical stuff. And actually, for the care, in a lot of ways, it goes the other way we yeah. shouldn't need to focus on the clinical stuff quite as much because mum can have whatever pain relief she wants because the yeah. baby's died you know all and also this is this is as as we touched on earlier this is all you get as a dad and a mum this is these moments are all you get with your baby so they are absolutely crucial and vital to be dealt with you know correctly yeah and so the you know the, the the thing is it's it's easy for them to overlook involving the dad but the good thing about it is it's an easy fix they just need to turn around and get him involved and yeah. you know when we train midwives and students and we talk about memory making and those sorts of opportunities those are a great opportunity to get dads involved yeah you know, of course. do you want to come and help me with these handprints or these footprints and even in the last seven years I've seen a, prog- a progression from this idea that Memory making is something that midwives would do away from the parents. And if you wanted it, yeah, the midwife would maybe take baby to another room and come back and you'd have some handprints and footprints. And we push really hard this idea that the memory is the intangible bit. Yeah. It's not the thing that, you know, the thing that you take home is great and you can take a handprint or footprint and turn it into a necklace or cufflinks or whatever else it might be. But that's, that's a, a really memory. great that's a really great way to get the parents involved do you want to come and do the hand and footprints with me yes and for a dad now I get to do something yeah mm-hmm. I've been sat in the corner twiddling my thumbs not really knowing what to do not feeling like a part of it sometimes suddenly now you've given me the chance to do something with my yeah. baby and you know even if you do a shit job of it <laughs> I think if, if, if the midwife invites the dad to do a handprint or a footprint and he makes an absolute mess of it He's still going to keep that. Yeah, and it's more mm. of a memory. Because he did it. He'll get the midwife to do a perfect one that he can turn into a necklace for his wife later. Yeah. But 10 years down the line, 
if they're sat looking through the memory box and they come to the really rubbish handprint, <laughs> that's that the bit dead. they'll remember. Yeah, <laughs> They'll remember and she'll turn to him and say, do you remember when you did that really awful footprint? And the midwife oh, you dickhead. That's, exactly. <laughs> that's the memory. And so yeah. we've, we've kind of developed in terms of how we understand delivering this care mm. to actually this should be something that we should embrace the idea of families partaking in themselves because they get the memories not just the physical manifestations of the memories if you just give me something on a card it's not a memory I didn't do it yeah I don't remember that happening I wasn't even in the room um so I you know we are starting to see that more and more which is really positive it's really weird to talk about positives in this sort of situation yeah yeah what's the name of the charity so this is where it gets a little bit complicated. I think soon after Henry died, I did a lot of stuff with a local bereavement charity in Harrogate, um, a local baby loss charity. And then about three, actually three years ago, yesterday, no, three years ago on Friday, the charity was formed. Okay. Uh, a charity called Beyond B, which is a training charity. Okay, yeah. So for the last three years, I've done a lot of voluntary work with them. It's, it was set up by my best friend, Steph. She's a midwife as well as a bereaved mum. Okay. So wow. her experience was, well, she was having that experience as a mum, but she had already identified as a midwife that the training wasn't good enough, the opportunities for learning weren't yeah. good enough. So her vision was, well, let's focus on training. And she can talk as a midwife and as a mum. And I think I'd done a lot of stuff to do with education and I'd gone around and presented to groups of professionals and so on. So it kind of fitted really nicely with what I wanted to do. Mm. I could do the sitting around in a support group, chatting to people's side, but that wasn't really my, that wasn't really my thing. So I wanted to actually kind of get out and hit, not physically hit them, but (laughs) <laughs> hit the professionals Good. and you know, try and make Sometimes that kind of and, 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 and bring about improvements in care rather than sit in a support group and listen to examples of poor care yeah so it's kind of like a proactive rather than reactive yeah that, and that was that was the thing for me is I want to mm. you know and like a lot of us this this there's this misconception that Brief parents don't want to talk about their kids, and so it's easier. This is a societal thing. Let's not talk about yeah. it because it will upset them. We Push don't it under the carpet. Yeah, society's yeah. got a lot and to actually, answer for. And actually, that and that's even more so for dads. I think. I think the female Definitely. side of our society mm. is is more geared towards providing support and comfort. Yeah. The, the the male side of our society isn't and you know, the patriarchy has a lot to answer for in, the, in that regard because it tells us that as dads our role is to support the mum yeah. and you know I, I look back and I think for years I'd get asked how's Barney doing yeah, yeah. Uh, and and apart from other parents that had been through similar things nobody ever asked how I was doing it's well how's Bryony doing because it's your job to support her so how's she doing yeah and it's almost like well mum's lost a baby and dad's there to support the mum that's just lost the baby and and there's that kind of macho male thing that we don't talk about our feelings or our emotions Mm and when we've been through this kind of experience how whatever the gestational age is we kind of reevaluate our friendship hierarchies quite quickly yeah for sure yeah very definitely yeah I was going to ask you about that what was the support like in your like friends and family network um I think it's strange because you think there are some friends that you think are right at the top of that list and they disappear 
It's surprising. And then there are other friends that are somewhere in the middle that suddenly rise to the Step top. Up, yeah. And then you get this whole new group of friends that have been through the same thing who suddenly appear out of nowhere and they become some of your closest friends in the world. Yeah. Because they're the ones that could relate to it and support you through it and guide you. So, you know, I think it turns everything on its head. I think my parents found it very difficult because they were from a generation that, that struggled to talk about it at all my dad yeah. was essentially just denied it and wanted to just Move carry on, on as if almost yeah. as if nothing had ever happened caused a lot of friction between us um but there is that sense of will we just adjust all of these sorts of things and so you I've become a lot less how can I put this a lot less sufferable to, of fools mm-hmm. I'm quite happy to just sort of kick people to the curb now yeah. if I don't feel like their friendship is going to work well we'll just put some space between you boundaries because we get we, get, we yeah. get a very different perspective on what matters in life yeah absolutely I couldn't and if you're my that. friend but you can't support me when my baby's died well yeah. you're not my friend I'm going to find the it's people a very different idea I'm of friendship find the, the people that can support me and for yeah. some people that's just because they don't know what to say or they don't know how to say it or they're worried about upsetting you all of which are perfectly natural I would much rather somebody said I don't know what to say but I'm really sorry mm. than just didn't say anything at all and so I think what I've tried to do is just and I know there's a few of us out there doing the same sort of thing from a dad's perspective just try to talk more openly about our experiences yeah and what we've been through as non-birthing parents, mm-hmm. because that can kind of break it down. And you know, that works on two different levels. That works on the level where your friends, if they pay the slightest bit of interest in what you're saying or read anything that you've written on a blog or anything like that, will will learn from it. And actually, if it cascades out more widely, then hopefully other parents, when they're going through it, won't find themselves with people that put their foots in their mouths and quite the yeah. same way. I think if you don't say anything, your friends are going to be like, oh, I'm not, I can't say anything. They've not mentioned it. It's probably best not to. Whereas if you can have that honest conversation, that's then going to allow them to talk. I think what we achieve, whether that's with local support group based charities or whether that's with training charities or whether that's with articles in newspapers or people doing podcasts or whatever else it might be what we achieve is a a sort of restructuring of the narrative so I think you know six seven years ago it wasn't talked about yeah and now and part of this is we're in this kind of echo chamber because we all follow other people on Instagram who do similar things or have Mm -hmm. had similar experiences so part of that is we hear it more because it's our life now yeah but I'm in absolutely no doubt that it's far more socially acceptable to talk yeah, it's about filtering out, isn't it? This subject now, mm. uh, and so that kind of cascades out, I think, and that's the really big thing for me is that's how we change behaviour in society when it comes mm. to a topic that's a taboo. And there's so many different taboos tied up in this. Yeah, mm. you can start talking about miscarriages as a taboo, or stillbirth as a taboo, or grief, you know, death grief death the termination is a sort of hidden taboo within the taboo of baby loss even in its own right that's a sort of taboo even yeah. within um ivf and uh, there's so many different taboos and actually we 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 get around and we we break the walls of the silence that kind of exists around those taboos they're broken down by parents that say 
actually, I'm not going to do it like that anymore. Mm, yeah. I'm not happy with that. That doesn't work for me. And I don't want that to have to work for somebody else in the future. So if you look at the podcasts that are out there like yours now, or the fact that people have started publishing books about their experiences as a bereaved parent or writing blogs or, or social media pages, the more of those sorts of things that go out there, the more chance there is of the next time somebody in Brighton goes through it, their friends might have stumbled across a book or a newspaper article or a podcast or something else. And, and they might have learned from something that somebody said on your pod or something that they've read on yeah. Facebook. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really matter what that medium is that influences their behavior to change. The more we're putting out there, the more likely it is that Absolutely. people are going to respond differently. Yeah, I love it. I saw recently um, someone had just posted on Instagram and it wasn't actually related to what we talk about at all. But someone had posted, it's time to change the things we cannot accept. And, you know, from the serenity prayer, give me the strength to accept things I cannot change, change the, the whatever. And I just thought that is so true because mm -hmm. there comes to a point where you you can't make excuses for anything anymore and you can't just just take a back seat anymore because lots of people are so easygoing or oh no you won't say it. you know I'd just rather an easy life boat. yeah yeah that I think that as society especially I think as a British culture it's what we've fallen back on for, for generations and generations and I think as you say Chris like the more people that can bring this to a forum. Like I just talk about it on Facebook. I talk about my miscarriage on Facebook and I've got, I don't know, however many friends, but I don't, I don't scale it just to talking about it within the baby loss community. I talk about it all the time. You know, when I, yeah. when I reach my due date, I put something on Facebook because I think it's so important. And just today I got a message I sent to Laura from mm -hmm. a lady who's in my netball team. And she said, Oh, I just wanted to let you know, my husband's friend suffered a miscarriage and um, I asked him to forward your details and she texted me today to say how helpful your podcast was and, and all this sort of stuff. And that is exactly as you say, that is someone has heard something within the forum, having never experienced miscarriage and then found out. And the knock-on effect is that this person gets the help that and the support that they wouldn't necessarily have had because of people like you and because of people like us who've got, you know, the balls and the and the voices and the volumes to, to do stuff. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's, it's a weird kind of way to think of yourself as an influencer in that, like, whoever, none of us set out to be influencers in the world of what happens when you lose a baby. <laughs> no, you know, that, it wasn't an ambition of mine. <laughs> you know, when we're 15 and we get asked what we're going to do when we're yeah. older, none of us came up with this. Um, we're all too busy putting condoms and bananas, aren't we? But, but we all get this now. What you've just described, Bex, we all get that. I think any of us that speak out that openly will get the friend who gets in touch and says, oh, well, a friend of mine's just had a stillbirth. What do I do? And that's fine. I like, I'll do that all day. Mm. Um, but that it's the only way we can actually bring that about. And like you say, British culture is so, we're so bad at dealing with death. Mm because we don't want to talk about it because it's socially awkward mm. and we're especially bad at dealing with the death of children yeah because we don't know how to cope with it but what happens when we talk about it more openly is it everybody understands that actually yeah they do know somebody that's been through it 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. Well, you know, that did happen to my aunt in or my great aunt in 1940-something. Well, that's what she was talking about when she was 85 or 90 and she was rambling on. I didn't really understand. And we hear stories of people whose grandparents, grandmas tell them about their experiences because they've started talking about it publicly 60, 70 years later. And I always kind of compare it. I think if you think what how our society dealt with cancer 30, mm-hmm. 40 years ago, yeah. everybody knew it was a thing. Yeah. Everybody knew somebody it was happening to or it happened to, and nobody talked about it. Yeah. And now it was we talk about the C word, wasn't it? It's not very well. (laughs) And now we talk about cancer like we talk about the weather. It's socially acceptable to talk about it because those barriers have been broken down. And I feel like the loss of the pregnancy loss is now where cancer was maybe 10, 20 years ago. Yeah. We all know that it happens. We still don't really want to talk about it. If we think about it, we probably know somebody that's happened to and the more of us that are talking about it, the more we're going to move. And that 10, that 10, yeah. 20 year lag isn't going to take 10, 20 years because things like Instagram and podcasts speed up the process of, of mm. normalizing that conversation now. But it, that's how you normalize it is by talking about it like it's a perfectly normal thing to talk about. Which and it's us, happening, it, isn't it? It's our life. Mm. Yeah. It is. We are moving in the right direction. And like you say, a lot faster than, than it would have done all those years ago Mm. I I'm I'm very proud to be part of this community that is speaking openly about it and moving things forward for sure because Mm. we get people who aren't part of this community and then literally today become part of this community and and for them it's amazing they can go on Instagram and find dozens of people who can support them and guide them whereas the likes of us all those years ago didn't have a bloody clue where to start so it's, it is I mean, I amazing think, you know, to... seven six seven eight years ago a lot of this stuff was still there were still chat forums yeah and 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 even maybe facebook groups were just starting to come through but it was all you had to kind of fill in your details and register and wait to be accepted there was no instantaneous element mm. to it yeah no pretty uh pretty pictures and and it's you know it's really driven through now because like you say instagram and no humor. Like that are so much quicker and humor is a really important element of it because yeah. it helps people understand that it's okay to laugh. Yeah, yeah. it's and relatable I think it, and it's normal. It puts the human element back into yeah. what is essentially a human situation. I think that, that there's a huge risk. I was talking to someone about this the other day. Is with the clinical, the clinical aspect, the, the medical aspect takes all the human aspect out of it. And I think by injecting humor in it, or trying to as Laura and I do um, <laughs> we you know we're putting that humanity back into it and, and and it doesn't when you when you lose a baby whether it be at eight weeks or at term you don't cease to be a human you know and you, you will laugh again have your personality that's, you know, that, that's, that's something that I always say you know it's it's physically impossible to then go on to be perpetually sad 24 hours a day yeah. every day mm. for the rest of your life I've and tried that's okay. yeah yeah. I've tried. It doesn't yeah. work. Because you feel guilty yeah. about being happy. And, and right? the first time that you laugh again, you feel horrendously guilty yeah. about it. And then you realise that actually you're not disrespecting the memory of the baby that you lost by laughing. And life does go back to normal. It's just a different kind of normal. Yeah. Yeah. That's it for part one. Keep your eyes peeled for part two in a few days' time. 
Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in. And please, please, when you have a second, rate us, review us and share us. And let's get this taboo smashed. See you next week. Bye.